If you're like most people, you probably haven't realized that fish farm finance is completely unfixed at the moment. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I had this whole intro about like from Frankfurt to Faisalabad. Uh, <laughs> and I don't know. I, alliteration is neat. Uh, but so is this episode. I'm Sloan Artel. This is the Free Money Podcast. And we're talking about fish farm finance. Um, our guest is Grant Kavanaugh. He is the guy you'd want to talk to about this. We'll talk to him about how how fish farms differ from traditional fishing, where you take the boat into the ocean and like get fish that way, um, and the sustainability difference between aquaculture and traditional fishing. Folks who are, you know watched Sea Spiracy and various other things might be aware that fishing fleets are huge contributors to ocean microplastics. Um, then we'll talk about the return equation, why private equity folks and institutional investors haven't like crowded in and reduced returns over time. And what sorts of opportunities there are to deploy catalytic uh, capital in aquaculture. Um, then, as usual, we take questions from you, which is just, I think, so cool of us, right? Like, accessible, hello. Um, if you want to ask a question, uh, freemoneypod at gmail.com, at your convenience. This week, we answer, how much stock do you put into those various pension indices that compare various countries on a range of things? Um can you think about of a time when someone really put the douche in fiduciary? What was and is the circumstance? And would you ever grow mushrooms? These are all questions that are at the center of every investment committee's deliberations right now. Um, thank you for joining us for another delightfully investable episode of the Free Money Podcast. I'll catch you on the other side of the disclaimer. Take it away, Sharkbait. Ahoy, Free Money Podcast listeners! I'm Sharkbait Buckley, the Disclosure Pirate, and I'm here to set ye straight about what's going on with this here show. Sloan Artel works for Invest Vegan LLC, a New York registered investment advisor. Ashby Monk works for Stanford University, Adapar, Future Proof, Long Game, and various startups. All opinions expressed by either Sloan or Ashby are entirely their own and do they reflect the opinions of their crew or any company. Clients who invest vegan may maintain positions in securities and strategies discussed in this podcast. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Invest Vegan and its representatives are properly licensed or exempted, and a client agreement has been executed. Arr. Here comes the money! Here we go! Money talk! Here comes the money! Welcome to the Free Money Podcast, where we give you the Brooklyn Bay Area consensus about uh, uh, the coughing right as we What do are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> we're craving, Sloan. Oh, uh, we're craving. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, you know, I got a little too excited there, and I, you know, I just, my voice couldn't take it, you know? It's because I think, Sloan, the craving is real. Yeah. People yeah, well, have the craving. I do. It, well, and podcasting is, is an athletic pursuit. I don't think that many people give it credit for that. That's true. It you know? is. You have to kind of get yourself pumped up a little bit. Yep. You know, yep. if you were feeling down, you got to look at the mirror and say, you're smart enough. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I, have you ever done affirmations? Uh, no, I haven't. But they... I have sung Man in the Mirror very loud to myself. Aww. Uh, 
gonna make a difference. Gonna make it right. I mean, the, cra- <laughs> the crazy thing about affirmations is that they actually do work. Uh, which really? Is like, it's so. I mean, like it. You know, it makes sense that you know we're basically monkeys and we can just sort of be like, "I deserve this," and I'm smart and talented and whatever. Uh, but That's yeah, amazing. yeah. All it's I like, can think of is the U.S. senator who used to just be a comedian. Yep. Yep. Al Franken staring at the mirror on SNL. You're good enough. You're so- gosh darn it. People like you or something oh, like man. that. You know, what's amazing about that character is that the, their outfit has stayed roughly the same amount of cool until now where, when it has become the coolest thing in the entire world. Wasn't it just a sweater? Yep, it's a sweater, but it's a spe- it's a special kind of sweater. You can't just buy any sweater and okay. achieve you know that what level of enduring cool. Yeah, yeah. you got to get a normcore precision guided missile yep. into the sweater department. To, That's to hilarious that kind of stuff. That's hilarious. How's off the top here? Are you doing okay? Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I, we recover. Um, did we talk about dead friends last time? I forget. <laughs> <laughs> Was, I think that was technically two episodes ago. That was te- yeah. well, yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's like you know, this is the the dead friends and related parties, and uh, yeah, you off know. the top here, we just take care of the business. Yeah, I know you lost somebody close to you. I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, what, you know, one of my best friends in high school, my roommate, uh, you know, d- died of a heart attack unexpectedly <laughs> recently, and like this episode was actually you know rescheduled, so you know we got to yeah. well thank you know you thank Grant. Thank, thank the fam and the free money, uh, you know, family for for bearing with us as I was too sad. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. You know? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like it's important to talk about grieving, though. I mean, like mm-hmm. you set the example, you know, without realizing that we were entering a new death-related phase <laughs> on the <laughs> on the free money podcast a couple of episodes ago. You know, we're all gonna die, Sloan. Yep. We are. I mean, I don't know if the listeners are aware of that. And and sometimes, you know, there's a whole lot of work in like the Zen world that is like just acknowledging that we are here for a period of time mm-hmm. is empowering. And there's nothing like having somebody close to you, you know. And so I sometimes just, I heard this great interview with Colbert um, once where he was like, I am actually grateful of all the losses I've had. And I was like, that sounds mm. crazy. But I think I, I am now, too, like. It is grounding. It is a reminder of how precious this all is. And I take, for example, this moment, Sloan, more. Yeah. You know, I have more, like, compassion and more interest in being here in this moment than maybe, I don't know. Yeah, no, th- I, I think that that is totally real. Like, I, I, you know, once you once you live long enough to have seen some shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because we didn't live through Nam. You know what yeah. I mean? We weren't yeah, yeah, in yeah. the shit. Yeah, we got soft hands here on the yeah. podcast. Uh, <laughs> Actually, because we garden, we got yeah, good calluses. Good calluses. You got to use the nitro gloves, you know? I mean, uh... <laughs> oh, I got to get those. Yeah, Don't yeah, yeah. Tip. The, that's your tip today. That's, I mean, well, I'm just, a, I, I abound with gardening wisdom today. I, you know, it's spring. I am the very spirit of Demeter herself. Let's get to the news, though. What oh, is, my God, news. <laughs> I did. Enough I about prepare. death. <laughs> Let's talk about actuarial. Oh, no, yeah. this one is, here we go, the country of Mozambique. Ooh. Now, Sloan, do uh, you know where that is, that country? No Mozambique? Google. Mozambique? Mm, um, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I admit that when I, the reason I ask you that is because I caught myself out. I was like, mm. I think it's, 
you know, I know it's sub-Saharan Africa, but I think yeah. it's over there down on the left. I was wrong. It's on the right. Yep. It yep. borders Malawi, Zimbabwe, and uh, Zambia. And so Mozambique is, for those of you that don't know, the third poorest country in the world. And yet it has intended to establish a sovereign wealth fund for some time now. And now that their natural gas exports are about to come online, um, the sovereign fund will be taking deposits by October. Mm. And uh, I think it was the Minister of Finance, Max Tonella. We're doing Good our name. research. Good name. Um, very well buttoned up story here. <laughs> Max says his fund could be $96 billion. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, that's, I mean, that seems a little weirdly precise for like, uh, obviously plucked out. I, I mean, like, you know, why I kept not trying to figure out, is this like the 40 year projection? Like our net zero friends, um, yeah, yep, or yep. is this like soon either way? I couldn't figure that out. Cause I only looked at one story. So I didn't really follow the thread of the story all the way to the end. Uh, but they've talking about 96 billion. Some people might like to know that these like low income countries, poor countries establish these funds um, to avoid what is called Dutch disease, mm. uh, which goes back to the Netherlands um, and the realization that if you are a commodity exporter, um, you can harm the value of your currency, um, which in which, well, increase the value of your currency, which harms your domestic exports. Yeah, the and resource so you, curse. The resource curse. Yeah, that's the Dutch disease. You know about that. Yep. And so you establish these funds, you hold the assets offshore, and you only onshore the assets, the financial assets, when your um, country has the capacity to handle it. And mm. so this is actually, even though it sounds crazy that the third poorest country on earth would establish a $96 billion sovereign fund, it actually makes sense. And my guess is the IMF and the World Bank will be pleased to hear this. Yep. Yeah, that's definitely like one of the things like, I, I mean, you know, if the if the IMF and the World Bank are like, you know, kind of the the doting slash, you know, cajoling grandparents of international development finance, like starting a sovereign fund seems like one of those things. That, like It's like the starting to journal, you know, yes. uh, like that makes it makes your grandparents very happy. <laughs> Start to journal. Are you journaling? Yeah, exactly. You gotta, you're gonna be so glad someday when you look back and you just, you, you know, you, you'll forget, you'll forget all the things. I don't know. Oh, I see. So your grandparents are from New York somewhere. Like yeah. <laughs> You'll forget. You'll forget. Or, yeah. No, y'all knew what. That's my boss. <laughs> I just said, no, you're not. Um, yeah. Okay. Now we're going to go straight to Oman. Oman. Mm, Oman. Oman. Sorry. That was good. Okay. <laughs> Oman. Oman. Um, the town of Musket, where I've been two times. I want to go there so badly. It's supposed to have such cool, like, oh, you know, you, places you to explore. You drive in, and it's like Portuguese monuments up in the mountains above this, like, Middle Eastern, um, beautiful, like, architecture place. I mean, like, I think when the Islamic countries come together, I think they come to Musket. I think there is a giant, like, meeting venue there. Anyway, yeah. I could be wrong because we don't do the research here. We just report out on uh, what we know. Um, but Oman in 2020 decided to merge the Oman Investment Fund and the State General Reserve Fund to uh, enjoy the benefits of scale and build the Oman Investment Authority. Um, very similar to the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority. Omania. Uh, correct. 
But on April 24th, um, His Excellency Abdul Salam Al Murshidi, who I've met when mm. I went to the Oman, um, has said we are going to split up this into two portfolios. Hmm. Uh, one for domestic development and one for international assets. Mm -hmm. And to me, that sounds a little bit like going back to what they had. That's what they had before <laughs> they did the merger. So mm. I thought that was newsworthy for our little community to know that I know. Mm -hmm. I see what they're doing. Yep, yep, they did yep, the merger yep. and then they're like, it was kind of good before. Yeah, like I liked how we just had a pool of money that we could go to when we wanted like a stadium built or something. Yeah, that was that was, that was the Oman Investment Fund. Yeah, and it was domestic and it invested in you know domestic development. Probably stadium, and, not a great example of domestic development. We're, no, that's we're, like we're hoping, one of the worst. Yeah, you, stadium <laughs> is like you know yeah if you want to like literally set your money on fire, uh, it's the I, I don't know what what a good worst thing is, but it's the I don't know frozen hot pocket of. Uh, Investment. <laughs> what deep, what deep yeah. to find something bad. Not yeah, everybody it, will see the hot pocket as bad. Some mm. people enjoy them, even though it burns your lips. No, but um, like when I'm talking about, like when you think it's cooked, but it's not really cooked, and you're like oh, you bite through the yeah. hot, and then there's a little piece of cold. That's miserable. That's, that's when you thought you were going to create jobs in the local community, and all you have <laughs> is a three hundred million dollar bond. Yep, yep, yeah. yep, exactly. And it's like and a war waste, It's a wasteland around the stadium that like nobody goes to. Anywho, yep. next story is about women, mm. half the world population. That's not my story, but that's something. <laughs> you I heard about these women? I think that's true. <laughs> Have you heard about them? They're out there. Uh, this one, I need to get serious because I don't want to be laughing while I say this in case it's taken out of context. Um, according to a study by the official Monetary and Financial Forum, also known as OMFIF, uh, women, sadly, aren't making progress towards um, landing high-level, powerful jobs in the financial services industry. Um, and OMFIF has something called the Gender Balance Index, which I thought is interesting. Hmm. Uh, this year is the ninth running edition of the Gender Balance Index. And I figure, like, we should be tracking that index. It's yeah. A good index. I'm glad that – good for OMFIF for, like <laughs> – Collecting the data. They track 335 institutions. So wow. OMFIF is doing some data analysis out there. And these are these are asset owners or asset managers or just big employers? I'm pretty sure it's one of the things you said. I have yeah, okay, taken sense. it to the threat. So it's finance organizations we're tracking. Okay, the... you know what? It says it in the blurb. Uh, central banks, commercial banks, sovereign wealth funds, public pension plans. That's the huh. list. Yeah. Okay. So I would expect that to be slightly more gender balanced than the industry as a whole. True statement. They're yeah. not doing hedge funds. Yeah. That's a very true statement. Um, this year it's ninth running more than half the organizations saw their scores drop. Not even Sick. hold steady. <laughs> Sick. Oh, <God. laughs> this is not sick, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> this is depressing. Yay! <laughs> uh, I can remember being in like fourth grade when somebody was like, that's bad. And I was like, what? Like actually bad? And they're like, no, like bad means cool now. And I was yeah, like, yeah, 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 oh, yeah. this has gone too far. <laughs> Anywho. Anyway, this is bad here because one in 10 institutions surveyed had no women at all in senior management or in the boardroom. 
Wow. And if you hear me poking my desk in the background, yeah. it's because I'm pretty upset about that. It's I think perfect. Out- it's outrageous. And I mean, hopefully organizations like BlackRock, which have said they won't invest in companies that don't have 30 percent uh, board diversity, which they define as people of color and women. And we joked, that's the goal. It's not 50 percent, but anywho, at least they're setting the target at 30 percent. There's 10 percent have zero percent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I think that they could all take an example from us at the Free Money Podcast. I mean, we're about to do diversity by having our first male interviewee. Yeah. <laughs> in, in, in like a year. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, six. Uh, my other favorite quote is 60% of the time. It works every time. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, speak. I mean, like, you know, we got a guy who works. I mean, what are we, we talking seg- about today? We got a segue that works. A good job of like leading in. I think. I'm yeah, yeah, time. yeah. So we're talking about. I mean, we're talking about fish farms, and this is really fascinating. Well, let, let's let Grant in here, and right. he can tell us why the heck you know we would we would be talking about this. Let's um, do it. Grant, this is perfect. He's not hey, here. Hey, oh, there he is. <laughs> he knows uh, we what's were, up with the show. He was. <laughs> we were hoping for a technical glitch. That would have been on brand. I know. Good I know. to see you, Grant. Can you? Can you can you hear me? Am I, am I, uh, Oh yeah. No, you're coming mess? through, which is shocking. Cause, uh, yeah, no, we got you. We saw your mug, mm-hmm. but the mm-hmm. audience can't see you. So we, what we do is we describe you. You're wearing a nice sport coat. You've got a green shirt on. There you go. And, and, and those like, um, those like standing over a trash can fingerless gloves, which are, are, are really, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I prefer to think of them as flash dance. <laughs> that is a flash dance about? for your hand. Yep. I yep. do. Oh, we're a big flash dance here. <laughs> so, I mean, like, I, I, you know, we did, as usual, a very elegant segue here. And I, you know, <laughs> um, I, I, I think that, like, you and I have worked together on this, on this, you know, report and on this. But, like, maybe, like, just to kind of level set and, like, get the audience into what the heck is going on with the fish farm finance and why we got to fix it. Um, like how do we free money to the fish? Yeah. Okay, great. All right. Well, um, maybe the best start. place to start is, uh, is going back to, like basically to the, the beginning of my life, which is an interesting kind of early eighties flash dance is in theaters. Um, and at, nice at call the time, Thanks. Yeah. Well, we're just at the beginning of the satellite era. So that's um, where a lot of our research and understanding of the climate really starts to pick up steam. It's once in the early 1980s when we have kind of comprehensive coverage of the world in terms of a lot of geospatial and physical processes. And that was also a time for, for the same reasons, that same technology that allowed us to look at the whole world, allowed us to fish like crazy. Mm. Um, and so we'd gotten to a point where we'd more or less overfished a lot of uh, the world's main fisheries. So in 1982, 83, that was a really big El Nino year. And it was so big and bad, the overfishing uh, at that time in Peru, that the entire Peruvian anchovy uh, industry collapsed and was nationalized. So all of the the biggest, uh, some of the biggest, um, you know, uh, oceanic fish groups in the world were nationalized because they were functionally bankrupt after this big climate event. 
And that, that was a time when China was large in per capita consumption, but hardly existed on the world stage. You know, only 10% of the world's fish was consumed by China at the time. And, um, and it was basically all wild catch. We didn't really have aquaculture. Well, uh, at that exact moment, there was a whole bunch of random Norwegian families and Scottish families who were playing around with throwing fish meal into the ocean into uh, salmon in cages to see, you know, what would happen. And so um, you can fast forward 30 plus years. Um, <clears throat> Flashdance is as relevant as ever. Uh, and <laughs> fair and roughly two thirds, roughly two thirds of our fish come from aquaculture today. Wow. Um, and that's about, you know, uh, 16% of animal protein overall. And, uh, and so we've, uh, just since 2000, we've tripled the volume of aquaculture in the world. Well, uh, the, the, the amount of fish that we catch from forage. So like those Peruvian anchovies has fallen by about a third. And, um, and China is what China is today, which is absolutely dominates world consumption of, of fish. And despite all that growth, the entire industry is sort of still remains weirdly financed by a small set of functionally, you know, Norwegian folks. Um, huh. There's kind of three Northern European banks that, that dominate the financing for these operations globally. And those are uh, DNB, Nordea, and Rabobank. So large banks on a regional basis, but not the largest banks in the world. And they provide this this financing and they have a real bias towards the species and locations where they feel most comfortable, which tends to be Northern Europe and um, in a select group of fishes. And if you're an economist, you know that whenever you get see a weird financing, right, mm -hmm. that's associated with uh, capital constraint and capital constraints are what for me, what make for extraordinary, never ending seeming uh, profit opportunities, whether it's a capital constraint in terms of a monopoly or something like that. Mm -hmm. Well, sure enough, salmon has had something like 24% return on invested capital over the last 20 or so years, which is enough to make it, you know, a portfolio of salmon assets would perform as well or better as, you know, the best picked stocks in uh, US or European um, uh, public markets. So if you had just, <laughs> if your pension yeah. fund had just bought the licenses to a whole bunch of salmon farms in uh, even 2000, you, you would have uh, made a, a, a really extraordinary return. And, uh, and people have noticed that, but, uh, and, and that segues into a little bit like Bain's experience in these markets, but maybe I'll, I'll stop there and ask if, if you guys have any questions about my 30 or 40 year history of, of, of fisheries. I'm having a lot of fun picturing like a, a Scottish guy throwing salmon meal into, into the ocean, just like for, you know, hoping just, for just the best. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah I, I'm not going to Either a sea monster comes out <laughs> or we're going to start a new industry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, like, it, it's sort of like, you know, in Silicon Valley, you're like in a garage in Scotland, you're just like, you know, throwing fish meal into the, into the ocean. Uh, you know, but like, I, I think like one of the things I want to make sure and ask about is like, it seems like there's this inherent like sustainability linkage, um, you know, whenever we think about like how data is coming to bear here, right? Because like you mentioned, like the big black swan event was this like climate linked, you know, bankruptcy of all of these Peruvian uh, anchovies, I believe, um, yep. you know, and so like, I, you know, I guess talk to us a little bit about that. I know that like, you know, for instance, you know, a lot of people who've seen Seaspiracy are like out here thinking, well, you know, fishing nets are filling the ocean with microplastics. Um, But yeah, how do you see this whole sustainability question in this? um... Yeah. So, I mean, one important benchmark for sustainability in general that a lot of people are looking at across a bunch of different industries is how fast has there been progress? Like, has there been appreciable progress? And, and maybe, you know, maybe in certain parts of the energy world, you'd say, well, it doesn't really matter if there's progress, all this progress almost necessarily has to level out at a carbon footprint and an environmental footprint that we just can't accept for the long run. Like, even if you're making rapid progress, there's going to be limits to that progress and we just can't tolerate it. I, I don't think that's the case in, in aquaculture more generally. Um, so salmon's a really good example in my kind of, when I first went into college and um, was reading papers about this for the first time, I was kind of fascinated. Going, going way back, I'm kind of a weenie for this sort of stuff. So, you know, I'm the type of person who did read those papers. And I remember, um, kind of in around 2000 when aquaculture in general, but salmon aquaculture in particular was sort of taking off in terms of its contribution to our global consumption. Um, there was a lot of concern, like this might be the equivalent of the ocean equivalent of like, a. uh, Exxon, right? Like an operation that that just at no point in the future could ever meaningfully contribute in a positive way to our overall um, uh, well-being, you know, as as a as a global society. And in my lifetime, uh, the the ratio, one of the most important ratios in terms of the footprint of salmon. So it's called fish in, fish out. So it's the it's the in kilograms the uh, amount of fish uh, meal that you put into the system versus how many kilograms of salmon you get out. And uh, that number has gone from something like 2.8 around 2000 to 0.8. So that means that we were burning, you know, two kilograms of fish just to create one kilogram of salmon in 2000. And today, uh, salmon on a whole is a net producer of fish in, and that's, that's the difference is made up for by, by soy in many cases and, and other plant-based proteins. So, you know, you just have to ask, are you getting over really important thresholds that are meaningful? Like that, that one for one where you're actually on net creating fish for the world. And, you know, two is just that rate of progress. That rate of progress has been exceptional. And, and today, if you look around, you probably see very few industries that have a higher percentage of green bonds or green loan facilities financing their overall operations. You know, I, 
making I'm making fun a little bit of the cabal of Norwegian and Northern European banks that support this industry. But one thing that they've done an exceptional job at is is uh, routing a lot of interest and focus towards explicit green mechanisms built into their financing. You mentioned that Bain had not that good of a time, though, when they tried to get into this. Uh, like, you know, I mean, surely no one on this podcast would like to hear a story about a private equity firm having a hard time. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm. There's part of me that's somewhat sympathetic to these folks because they started with what I think is a pretty good idea. I mean, we we work really hard to write a hundred page paper that details in, in a lot of of why you'd want to consider this as as a really exceptional investment, but. Uh, but the devil is in those details. And, you know, our, our team of oceanographers has real expertise on some important dimensions of how this industry works. And I would imagine that that's not true of some MBAs in Boston. Uh, I, I, actually, there's, there's plenty of good educated folks all over Boston. I'm from Boston, so I'm very partial to the city. But my guess is that they didn't have as strong a command of some of the technical uh, nuances of the industry that they were walking into. And additionally, there's always, when you're the first mover, some sort of um, maybe adverse selection problem where the folks who are willing to sell you an asset that seemingly is an ATM for printing returns are probably the first ones to say yes to that to that offer are probably the ones you shouldn't buy from. So in Bain's case, they bought a mid to large size Chilean operator uh, about seven or eight years ago on the back of some success in turning around a feed producer. And um, the real exceptional returns are in that primary production, owning those farms. And, uh, and Bain had seen this and on that back of it, that they said, all right, well, it's time to go in. What they found was that the operators were lying systematically about mortalities to regulators and modifying the seabeds in ways that were illegal. It was exposed through this big, uh, uh, excellent work of investigative journalism on the part of some some Chilean newspapers. And fast forward to now, they're seven or eight years into their uh, adventure. It uh, in addition to losing a bunch of different licenses and having to pay some very large fines, um, I, you know, I think all of that has been a real distraction from actually uh, uh, growing efficient, you know, growing an efficient operation. And their operation has continued to have real problems. So, you know, in a highly volatile industry, a group with a five to seven year time horizon. Uh, even if even if they're they're working on the promise of really great returns, might still their time horizon and their attention to detail just might not be great enough um, to overcome the challenges there. Which is kind of what what we ultimately like to help with from for you know sustainability minded investors. I I just think it's so interesting to hear the 24% number that you threw out there on, on salmon performance. Um, I've looked at something called blue bonds, which I think mm -hmm. are interesting bond, interesting name for bond, a blue bond. Um, and it's about clean water. 
don't you know you know if you need me to like clear up the 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 name there it's clean water the blue bond and mm -hmm. obviously there's a lot of water issues around fisheries and commercial fishing but i i want to just understand the like performance opportunities because another non sequitur here is I, in college i had a couple friends that would go fishing in alaska and seemingly uh -huh. like come back every every fall with more money than they knew what to do with um like they were literally drunken sailors when they got back <laughs> because they had you know 30 or 40 grand so i guess what i'm wondering is like is commercial fishing just a very lucrative thing to be doing in the world like generally and then Beyond that, when you start thinking about non-boat fishing and the fisheries, like what geographies do people go after? And, and I guess what I'm trying to understand is how do you access it as an investor? Like, yeah. do I need to go build these things? Like, is there greenfield risk and I have to actually build? Or can, is there like an ETF, a fisheries ETF? So I'm sorry, that was a lot of different things I just threw at you. Hopefully you're taking notes. Yeah, there was a few or, questions in there. Yeah, um, no, I do, so, that. I do that to people. <laughs> So one of your questions was just like, is fisheries across the board really uh, an extraordinary opportunity? And I think one of the reasons that institutional investors have a hard time accessing these returns is because you can't boil it down to a simple lesson like that, right? You can't say uh, fisheries across the board is a great opportunity. Mm. There are definitely fisheries in the world where um, there's not... Uh, a, there's not really good underlying economics. And actually, if, if you'll permit me, I'll give you a little detour on supply and demand in, in salmon and why, what's driving those returns. So, um, so supply in the short term is more or less fixed. It takes two years to grow a salmon up to market weight. So, you know, the decision to produce salmon or not, you know, it's, it's like people are talking about with, the disruptions to world energy markets right now. A lot of the decisions about supply were made two years ago and you can't really change them in the short term. In terms of demand, I mean, it's it's also very similar in the sense that um, demand is not very sensitive to price. You know, you kind of just want, if, if you want your bagel, you just kind of want your bagel with locks. It's a, mm -hmm. it's a luxury good. It doesn't really matter if it's double the price. It's still going to be a luxury good either way. Um, and uh, and so, uh, so whenever you have that circumstance where supply is relatively fixed in the short term and demand's relatively insensitive to price, you're, you can see huge disruptions. Like in salmon yeah. markets, um, the prices have more than doubled in, in the last couple, uh, last couple months. Um, months? I thought you were going to say yeah. years. Double no, no, months. I could, I could pull it up, but, but we're going, you know, but it was not too long ago that we were five dollars per kilogram of salmon. Maybe, uh, yeah, maybe in the fall, and now we're at twelve. So yeah. it, it, it has exactly the same type of uh, uh, economics that electricity production has, for example. One of the th weird things about electricity is it has to be consumed at exactly the same moment it's produced, right? right? Supply and demand have to balance. And that's true of salmon too. You can't really store it. It loses tons of its value as soon as you freeze it. So fresh mm. salmon is how most people consume it. And so it needs to be consumed within a couple weeks of it being taken out of the sea. So supply and demand always have to balance. And that creates these interesting economics.
I do enjoy um, smoked salmon, though, Grant. Yeah. Okay. Well, yes, you can have value added products that'll add some shelf life to it. But even your smoked salmon, it's not, I mean, there's not, it's not going to shelf last stable. Yeah. Well, th think of it this way. Like you, you can go into a 7-Eleven and get beef jerky that's been sitting on the, uh, on the, you know, shelf for months potentially. Right. <laughs> That's doesn't really work for smoked salmon. Maybe there are some exceptions of <laughs> salmon jerky, but that we don't really Snap consume into it. A you know, salmon slim jim, a salmon jim, salmon jim. Maybe <laughs> not all Maybe. Our jokes are good. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. Maybe somebody likes that. Yeah, no yeah, salmon yeah. jim. Uh, okay, but just to get just to nail this. If I want to start investing in salmon, I don't know if you're done with your detour yet, but I want to figure out how to get access to this little space. Do I have to yeah. buy the bonds from Rabobank? Um, well, that's that's one opportunity, right? And functionally, they're kind of gatekeepers today. Um, so, so I think ultimately what you'd want is uh, for a suite of models, let's say, by a company mostly populated with oceanographers who – uh, <laughs> understanding of of this. If, stuff. Only, so, if only there were somebody who could help us with access to this data. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, what do you I mean, do a for really a living, good Grant? example? <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Well, a, a really good example is uh, is um, catastrophe finance. So if you go back to the wake of um, Hurricane Andrew, Hurricane Andrew came through it destroyed a lot of capital within the reinsurance industry. And in the years after that, in particular, a lot of reinsurers made a lot of money. You'll see Warren Buffett, you know, um, crowing about how much money he was making in the world of reinsurance in the wake of Hurricane Andrew in 1992. Well, at the same time, a lot of um, uh, structural engineers were hard at work building quantitative models that basically simulated a uh, house getting smashed by a hurricane. And on that basis, they really democratized understanding of this industry. And through a select group of investment funds, slowly but surely, a large amount of pension fund money got moved into the world of catastrophe insurance and reinsurance to the point where a lot of pension funds and endowments will have one or 2% of their uh, assets in catastrophe uh, reinsurance today or, or some form of, of insurance type uh, uh, capital. And so the GPs in that circumstance were kind of, um, they were curating the output of these modelers. So the modelers had the real capability that was democratizing finance. And LPs at the time were not informed consumers of those models. So they needed GPs to stand in between them and the underlying risk. But fast forward to today where catastrophe finance is not some extraordinary um, uh, money-making opportunity. It's kind of a normalized piece of a institutional portfolio. Like I said, one or 2% overall. And a lot of, LPs are sophisticated enough investors that they're just buying the, the catastrophe models themselves. So if you look at Canadian pension funds or Australian supers or 
a bunch of funds in the Netherlands, like they are as sophisticated uh, buyers of that type of intelligence as anybody else in the marketplace. And, um, and so they're cutting out as many middlemen as they can uh, in terms of accessing the underlying risk that's made possible by a new suite of models. And we'd like to see the same sort of progression in the world of, of aquaculture and, and ocean-based finance in general, is have a suite of models and try and connect them to the most sophisticated people who today might, might be actually capable of seeing a new model and understanding what, what that unlocks in terms of financing. That's interesting. You just mentioned a bunch of asset owner investors, um, where, mm -hmm. where I, I would, I would think of what you are describing in the aquaculture space as like a classic alternative market where you need kind of a specialized intermediary. Now I'm not saying that the big asset owners wouldn't be there eventually. Like if you look at who owns timberland today or, um, you know, who owns infrastructure, Although agriculture is still a bit of a laggard, I would say, and I would expect aquaculture even behind that. Um, the asset mm -hmm. owners are there, they're long duration assets, but it takes a specialized team. Like Nuveen, yeah. which was TIA, has done a very good job with agriculture, but they bought asset managers to do that. And so yeah. when I think about your space you're talking about, 24% returns, you need incredible domain knowledge, you need to subscribe to your data and your models to be really smart. We'll give you a plug here. Don't worry. This is the uh, we got. <laughs> no, not, this is what we I do. Mean, I, I've I've I spent a lot of time with this paper. It's great. Like there's well, some this really is the cool related part. Yeah. Like we're gonna just go buy Grant's data if you want to make yeah, twenty four yeah, yeah. percent a year. I think we can say that. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, like while we were working on the paper, I was like, hey, what if you guys just start a fund of your own? <laughs> <laughs> but my point is, this is a classic alternative <laughs> industry where it's it's like the information is hard to get the market is opaque people have lost their shirts doing it wrong and so isn't that i mean wasn't bain the right type of actor to go after it actually rather than the canada pension plan i mean i like canada pension plan but i mean conceivably uh, conceivably but i think that uh that I, that there are a lot of sophisticated folks out there who um are genuinely interested i i think that the rate of progress and Ashby, I mean, you're much closer to these institutional allocators than I am, but my impression is they're getting up to speed with a lot okay. of the specialized managers that they'd be working towards, that it's not crazy to imagine that in 10 years time, they'd be as sophisticated in terms of frontline opportunities, navigating mm. frontline opportunities as, as the actual um uh, GPs themselves, which isn't to say that we wouldn't work with GPs, but you know, there's part of me that, that, uh, <laughs> just loves inherently just like loves working, uh, with the, the lowest cost provider that loves working Love with too. the most sophisticated, best aligned incentives, uh, possible. Like that's always really, uh, uh exciting. So then I, I know I'm worried that I'm keep taking you further and then we're going to go over time, but with this one, just last one, which, and then back to you, Sloan. Yeah. Uh, does does so the way that we really convince the asset owners to build up the capability to partner with you and go do this in the aquaculture space is we help them understand their comparative advantage relative to the intermediary space. And so then the question yeah. for you, Grant, is does it help in this space to have 
um, a longer time horizon so that patient hold? And does it help to have big check writing ability? Or are these niche projects that begin to spin off cash in year two? You know, because if it's the niche projects in year two, then the pension funds may as well invest their time and effort on Timberland, where it takes 50 years. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, these are all capital intensive. So, you know, so, uh, so, uh, 50 to 75 basis points of a reasonable sized endowment, you could put that to work in buying assets, uh, today, like a small, uh, mid-sized salmon company would, would take up that amount. Right. Um, so, so it's, it's the right size to, to consider that. And, and yeah, like like you're saying, the time horizon is such an important piece of this. With okay. an industry that's as volatile as this one, that's subject to freezing events hitting Nova Scotia or you know a algal bloom that knocks out of all, all most of Chile for a year or two, you can imagine that five to seven year time horizon, which is kind of over, you know what a, a lot of private equity groups are looking at that's probably too low to really, uh, with any kind of confidence, access the extraordinary returns that are available. You need to push a little bit beyond that. And that's another reason why ultimately, I mean, you know, my hope, who knows, but my hope is that, is that this is appropriate for, you know, uh, longer term time horizon investors that are working at an institutional scale. Beautiful. You, you know, what, one of the things that I think is just so interesting about this too, is like, I mean, you know, obviously like, you know, longtime listeners of the show will know that I will probably not be eating this fish anytime soon. But, uh, you know, like if you think about it, about, you know, first of all, this, you know, protein demand is not going away. Uh, right. You know, we have an overall need to do harm reduction as a society, you know. But then when you started getting into the data on what makes individual properties better than others, one of the big things that really comes out is it's, it's, it's about like how many fish survive. <laughs> to maturity yeah. right so like you know the, the your like the the operating opportunity it seems to be like you know in some ways fundamentally aligned with it with you know certain interpretations of esg um i wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that right like you know what's the built environment like where these things are who are the people that they're employing um you know like how many other jobs are there um in yeah. places where aquaculture is yeah so um so, you know, these are uh, fundamentally what what a fish farm today for salmon is is uh, is kind of a bunch of large ringed cages that are sitting in a fjord somewhere in Norway or Scotland or Chile or the Faroe Islands or east and west coast of Canada, and there is usually a floating mobile home that's nearby that people are manning. 24 hours a day uh, that, and they're feeding the fish whenever they can, whenever it's safe to, because there's not a low dissolved oxygen event or some other weird thing that's ongoing. Um, And so, and so these tend to be covering pretty remote communities that will often have uh, pretty low educational attainment, relatively speaking. And also like in places like Chile and in Canada, uh, those are systematically also areas that that have a lot of overlap with indigenous communities. Um, so the west coast of Canada right now, um, there's been a big ruling just in the last couple of weeks. The the 
Trudeau's government had announced an intention to phase out all Nepen aquaculture in British Columbia. Um, and there, there been, you know, uh, indigenous communities actually on both sides of that. So some saying, listen, this is not the species of salmon that, that, uh, we grew up with. It's not part of our cultural identity. We are worried about the environmental impact. And then a lot of other people saying, this is the best employment opportunity available. And in many cases, we have equity stakes in the operations themselves. Uh, that's that's pretty common in, in Canada, that there'll be a revenue sharing agreement with the indigenous communities in, involved. So um, so all that is to say that um, that those questions are, again, it's like over and over again, the devil is in the details. Like what, what you make of the sustainability uh, is a function of how well you run your farm and how well you run your farm has a lot to do with like nitpicky issues related to low dissolved oxygen or all these other technical concerns. And it's similar from the kind of governance standpoint, which is, you know, you've, you've got uh, a really wide range of stakeholders involved some of whom really like this is core to their identity and some people who for the same reasons uh don't don't see it as as uh, an important contribution to the economy that they want to grow in their community over time on balance i would say that you know you, you see uh the communities that still have additional room places like newfoundland are expanding their their salmon footprint today. But a lot of places like Norway, there's just not a lot more space for additional, <laughs> there's, there's not a lot of hidden fjords out there uh, that <laughs> that nobody has has yet explored or there's reasons why they aren't. So it's, it's up against a limit in some cases against uh, expansion. Mm. Well, that's, I mean, just a fascinating, fascinating story. Thank you so much for hopping on Das Pod and, awesome. and telling the family about it. Yeah, we want to <laughs> unlock capital for, for more sustainable fisheries. It's awesome. Yeah, eat fish, not cows. Eat fish, not cows. <laughs> I mean, eat, eat neither, but if you have to eat one, eat fish, not cows. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, Thank Greg. you so much, Greg. Really we'll appreciate you later. it. <laughs> Thank you, Bye. Thank you, Bye. Bye. Uh, you know, one of the things that really jumped out at me in that interview was he was he threw out a benchmark for sustainability of has there been progress? Yeah, that was cool. You know, which like I, I think that's a really like important thought to put a pin in and, and think about because it's a it's a useful mental model for for anything. Totally. Right? You know, we like forgot the, to ask him a garden tip. No, we are not right. good at doing podcasts. I have, we're not good at doing. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe we're the only people who could give garden tips. Maybe you know yeah, what? Like that's what that, we were gonna. We were gonna ask everybody for a garden tip, and now that's it's done. We're not gonna do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? Yeah, it's too complicated. Oh, uh, <laughs> the other thing that I liked, he talked about floating uh, homes. What floating was, mobile homes, yeah, fl- yeah, and yeah. I was like, houseboat. Yeah, that is sounds that cool I, as hell. Yeah, I like. Is that like a yacht? Like, I want to chill out on a floating mobile home. I think it's called a boat. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, like, I, I think that you know, as Grant would say, the devil's in the details here. Oh, true. Like, true. like <laughs> yeah. no, the, you when know. you see it, you're like, oh, actually, it 
is just a floating mobile home. That is that really does seem like a floating mobile. Yeah, exactly. It's not, none of the charm of the of the Dutch, uh, you know, houseboats here. The the Senator Mansion uh, variety <laughs> of houseboat. Oh God! Oh, oh sorry, God. did I do that? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mm. mean, you know, I mean, I, I think it's I think it's good that he um, lives in a houseboat. Anyway, what's the, let's talk about hard things. What's been hard oh. for you this week? I mean, you just had like a very good thing. I imagine True. that was a hard thing. True, true. A little foreshadowing there. Yeah, so we, uh, Long Game, which I think longtime listeners will have heard. One oh, yeah. CEO of Long Game has been on this pod. And mm-hmm. many will know that I am a co-founder and board member of Long Game. And we sold to Truist, which is the sixth biggest bank in America. And Truist is going to um, build out the app and continue to try to help Americans save money through games, which is a crazy concept. Um, But this is the hard thing segment. And I can tell you, boy, was it hard. (laughs) And I actually wrote down, I'm glad you raised that one, because I wrote it down that, you know, now I've like started a a few companies and managed to like land them in in other companies, i.e. sell (laughs) them. Um, It is so different and hard compared to raising money for a startup. Mm. Um, you know, one is like, I don't know, like everything is upside when you're raising money for a startup, everything is like, what could this be? Think Mm. about the possibilities. And when you're trying to sell your company or you're in in discussions to sell your company, it's like negotiating a prenup. It's like, tell me what could go wrong. And so it's actually quite a different mindset when you're going into those conversations. And I think the M&A process, now that I've been through it a few times, um, is a much longer process than fundraising. So you, mm. you entrepreneurs out there, like know that you can't be like, well, if I don't raise money, I'll just sell my company. It's actually like almost a longer process <laughs> to sell your company than it is ever to get through a fundraise. In both mm. the cases, for me, with, with RCI at Adapar and now Long Game to Truist, multi-year relationships that like were established and then like nurtured, and in some cases, commercial terms like were established for one of them, and and then you know at the end, it's like yeah, maybe we really should come together and build something, and that feels like dating towards a marriage, you know, with a with a negotiation around a prenup. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so that's hard. You're right to point yeah. out. Very hard. Yeah, that's, I mean, like, yeah, I, you know, you don't really think about it that way because it's, it, that, that is sort it's sort of like the glamorous, it's like retirement, you know, you ascend into the heavens and you've, you've had yeah. an exit. Yeah, you, you had know. an exit. And it's like, oh man, did that just come together? And you're like, I've been working on that for two years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, God, God, I've almost died. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, I, I have lost, for long game, I think I've lost months of sleep, yeah. not days of sleep, you know? Yeah. I mean, any good kid, any good kid, you're going to lose some sleep over, right? (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I mean, that, like, that makes total sense. Um, The, I guess what's been hard around here is I had, so I've recently, uh, this is like a little bit of foreshadowing maybe for the free money podcast. (laughs) I've recently learned about merch um, a little bit. Wow. and in particular, um, like, so I basically I've, I've realized that I can stick up posters that have invest vegan stuff on them around Brooklyn and then people will see them at their coffee shop. And oh my God. Clients. Um, so I've been ordering 
like cute posters and stuff like that to put up in places. Um, but goddamn, if I don't, if I haven't discovered like this perfect knack for ordering the thing to get printed right before I find a typo in it, Ooh, um, you know. Yes. And so yeah, it's like. I mean, it's, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's not the biggest thing in the world, right? I mm. mean, the markets are down a bunch, you know, like, uh, there's all sorts of big, big thorny questions. Stuff. But but those are kind of like in scope for being an asset manager, right? You sort of expect that you're going to have periods of time when like, the market is bad, and everyone hates stocks. And you know, if you're a stocks person, then, you know, you just sort of like, look weird for a couple of months. Yeah. Um, you know, and then it'll be fine again, you know, uh, but like, the when you take on that marketing dimension on the side and you're thinking like i literally have 150 pieces of of paper that have this like typo on them now uh you know and, and it's like okay so am i going to creatively repurpose these like you know I've, I've caused them to be print you know or do i just like write it off take the l like a true woman of business you yeah. know like I, the and it's like i don't know why i feel that this is such a big ethical conundrum you yeah, know i get it you know, but <laughs> and here you tell your story. I I'm, I don't want to make this about me because I love, I love that you're out there, and and I part of me wants to like let's go get a billboard together, the oh. co-sponsored billboard, free money podcast with shit. Invest Vegan. Oh yeah, man. shit! Why not? It's gonna be That's like twenty four dollars based on my zero knowledge. Maybe it's more idea. than that. But I have That's to tell you idea. a story. When I was uh, doing my PhD at Oxford, um, we were super pumped when we could get business cards. And my good oh, friend yeah. and co-author, Adam Dixon, very dear friend of mine, we actually lived in Paris together. And then we lived in Oxford together. And we did the same doctorate program. So it was very, Aww. very fun. Um, I was at uh, the department. We ordered our business cards, and I sent him this email. I, I got both of our business cards. I, hey, I got your business cards. I got bad news. There's typos in both of our business cards. <laughs> and I was like, man, they they messed up my fax machine. Oh, and no. And they've got your name listed as Adma Dixon. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I just thought that was so funny because nobody cares about the fax machine. <laughs> yeah, 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 and it's like, yeah, exactly. It's like you know, and if someone tries to send you a fax, you know what? They don't deserve to get in touch with you. Yeah, but like, like I, I sold it. Like we both got screwed by the business card people. You know, I was yeah, like, yeah, yeah, they yeah. got my fax machine wrong, we, equally, and they got your name wrong. Equally harmed by this. We're both yeah. screwed. Yeah, and, it's in, uh, like so, so. Is your friend Adma? Uh, you know, like just having a nice time with his life now. That that's, oh, he is out know. there. He's having. He lives in the Netherlands. His life is good. Yeah, he's good. Mm -hmm. he's having a great... I don't know if he's a listener. So Adma, mm -hmm. if you're out there, but yeah, I, had, yeah. I, I literally had his email as Adma Dixon. <laughs> I think to this day, if I was going to write an email mm -hmm. in Gmail, it would be like, "Is that Adma you're trying to reach?" Yep. Uh, yep. Because of that moment. Anyway. Yep. Anyway, well, you know, I. I think that it's time. Mm. I think it's time. I think it's time we had a sound effect. I think uh, you nailed that one. I feel yeah. like the last few they kind of get muffled in the pod. Yep, yep, yep. Well, see, the thing is, like, you know, I'm not recording this on my phone this time. Uh, Interesting. Like, yeah, it's this weird thing I'm trying where uh, my computer works as we're as we're recording the show. But anyway, this is the Dear Ashby segment of the show. It is our, one of our signature segments that we absolutely never forget to do. No, we don't. Uh, do, we always do this one. Yeah, and that's how you know it's a real segment. Uh, yes. 
And uh, if you would like to ask a question in an upcoming you know, episode, please do uh, send us an email, freemoneypod at gmail.com or go to freemoneypodcast.com and just, you know, fill out a little form and, you know, and ask a question. It can be absolutely whatever you want. Um, and Ashby will answer it and then we will vamp on it and then we will answer the next question. That's how questions and answers work, I think. It's, Is that correct? Pro- yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I think that's right. I think that's right. Always good um, to give people the rules of Q&A. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, I, and you know, and just so you know, um, this podcast works better with the volume on, um, <laughs> and one x speed. We do yeah, not yeah, like yeah. how we sound at two x. Oh my god! Yeah. Uh, okay, so here's this first one. How much stock do you put into those various pension indices that compare various countries on a range of things? Like, this is like the vaguest question yeah. I've ever seen. <laughs> Oh, but I love it. I love the I love the listeners that ask the questions. It's a good question. This is a re- I mean, it's uh, it, it is good. It, it, it there's a it lot manages. that goes into this. This yeah. is where I begin my soliloquy. Mm. There's a lot that goes into this, dear listeners, because pension funds have contribution rates, investment return rates, and replacement rates, which is how much of your uh, ending salary or blend of the last few years salary are you expected to replace in retirement mm. and a pretty good mm. replacement rate i would argue is around 65 70% yep and so i put some stock in the in those indices that talk about replacement rates but it's not enough to just think of it as a replacement rate you have to go back and look like how much money did we take from these people when they were, you know, they had kids trying to go to college where we like taxing them to the bejesus in order to fund their retirement. So that's got to be a give and take here. And obviously the investment performance is the thing I spend most of my life on. So I'll tell mm. you the the invention that I stole from Hugh O'Reilly, uh, former uh podcast guest i believe the canada podcast guest extraordinaire yes the uh you know explaining the canadian pension model with trademark canadian politesse and i actually put what i'm about to describe you in a paper and i believe i acknowledged him but i may not have i may not have because it was just (gasps) might have been confidential might have been a confidential conversation that we had (laughs) to anonymize it but he here's all the credit in the world he had this idea of a pension health metric where he said, look, you can't just look at funding. You have to look at funding and discount rate together. Mm. Because if you have a high discount rate, then you'll look funded. If you have a low discount rate, then you'll look underfunded. But if you look fully funded with a low discount rate, then you've got a really healthy pension plan. And that's what Mm. he was always trying to do at OP Trust. And so I always thought, and maybe this is the part I invented, you can create a ratio based on that where you look at the funding level, so is it 100% funded, 105% funded in the Netherlands, or is it, you know, like Chicago, 25% funded? Mm. Um, and then you would divide that by the discount rate, the expected return target. And so a very healthy fund would be like 25% or 25, mm. sorry, this is the ratio, 25. Yep. And a very unhealthy plan would be five, for example. Um, And I think that like if we could do a global benchmark of the defined benefit plans using that type of a pension health, I would put huge amounts of stock in it. Um, But I don't think that's out there. So the answer to the question is, no, I don't actually take that much interest in these aside from like anecdotes. Well, and and like I I think that 
one of the things that really, you know, grinds my gears about them is that the conclusions are often very similar. Like, yeah, we know the Netherlands has a great pension system. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, like the it's like, okay, the, you know, the places where there's no litter in the streets, they have great pensions. Wow, that's a shock. Exactly. Uh, you know, and like the places where they have no social safety net, they have high savings rates. Wow. Uh, you know, and I think that for producing decision relevant information that they can they can often kind of fall behind and you know um it would be great if you're if you're out here you know working for some sort of like nonprofit advocacy group or something like that you're trying to come up with some thought leadership to do that would pension be a good report in pension health it's, it's i mean it's free it's free by money. the way you just mentioned a segment we don't do anymore what did you hear it did you hear it and Gr- it's and- grinding gears grinding gears Oh wow! I think we used to do a grinding gears. That might yeah, have what's been that was the news? Time. Yeah, that was that. No, that know, was the top. I think that the was top. Like, yeah, the yeah, top. Yeah, 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 yeah. What's Good grinding times. your gears? Good I mean, the, the, another masterful segue from the Free Money Podcast. This is a great question. Uh, can you think of a time when someone really put the douche in fiduciary? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what was slash is the circumstance? I love it. Uh, I, I'm picturing somebody just had like a funny thought and was then okay. like, who can I ask this to, you know? Yeah. 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 And that's what, <laughs> that's the energy we're trying to pick up on here. <laughs> um, and I also think more of my thinking on this is like, I think we need a segment called fiduciary. <laughs> <laughs> fiduciary. Oh, fiduciary of the week. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. We just point out a pension. Anyway, to answer this brilliantly posed question, I think whenever the fiduciaries um, say that they aren't paying attention to shit that's good for the world because of their obligations, yeah. which used to happen all the time on climate, still happens on things like diversity and you know inclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they say, oh, no, I'm a fiduciary. I can't. <laughs> I can't. This is going to take hold. I think. I think. This is, I, I actually. I love this. I. Yeah. I fucking love this. I. The. I like. I mean, this is going to be bigger got, than Ephanon. Yeah. 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 No. No. This is the next Ephanon, right? You heard it here first. I mean, like, Fidouche. yeah. The fiduciary movement really has been just remarkably uh, powerful over the years, and and yeah, I mean, like, they have inhibited a great deal of social progress. Um, yeah. No. I mean, look. It's it's not two or three years ago. I was still hearing you know, certain pension funds saying things like, how do I get this climate thing to go away? You know, and it's like, change your portfolio, dude, get net zero, like all those kinds of things. That's how it goes away. It doesn't go away by just like thinking about how I placate stakeholders. That's how you're a fiduciary. Yeah. yeah, yeah. How do I tick the box here? (laughs) Oh Oh, man. I'm picturing like an, like the fiduciary, like X-Men or, or like what the evil X-Men, uh, I don't know. Like, you know, there's, you got like box ticker, uh, you know, you, you know, got, the uh, Kung Fu Panda skadoosh. Oh, there's a va- that vibe here, which yeah, I think yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. fiduciary. Fiduci- <laughs> yeah. Jack Black vibe. Yeah. 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 That, I mean, that tracks, that tracks. All right. So Keep this that is that in like mind for your, uh, poster printing operation. Oh, uh, that's a good point. That's a good point. <laughs> I, maybe I'm just going to, I'm just going to print up big posters that say fiduci and put them up everywhere. Uh, the, you know, uh, like. I could be a lot more gorilla about the free money podcast. You can. About my like regulated asset management business. Yeah. Um, this is the last question. I think, you know, Oof. I'm sure 
you know, everybody's wondering this. Would you ever grow mushrooms? How would you do it? Do you know how to do it? Is it too scary? What are you, what are you thinking about the mushrooms? I had a friend in college who, for legal reasons, I will keep uh, anonymous. Oh, 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 you're talking about the psychedelic <laughs> mushrooms. He grew mushrooms in his dorm room closet. And I'll mm. tell you, I thought that was like a very poor life choice. <laughs> because, you know... First of all, you get caught with that shit. It's trouble. Oh, yeah. And, my God, we were like 20. Like, Lord knows, you do not have the controls in place next to your sneakers. Anyway, he survived. <laughs> He's out there. Um, so that's the good. But so I think I'm afraid, but I, I think I'm also willing to try. Mm-hmm. So I think if you gave me a controlled environment and you're just like, look, it's just like cooking. Here's the soil. Yep. Here's how much you water. Here's how you do it. You know, I would try it because because I love I love mushrooms. I mean, I really do enjoy to like grilling up mushrooms and putting it, you know, on different sandwiches, whatever it is. Like, I do love them, mm-hmm. but I am afraid that I would kill myself. Yeah, I mean, like that's always the vibe with mushrooms. It's like, and that's why they're they're known as the gay. Uh, oh, the gay the gay kingdom. Uh, you know, I don't know. That's not true at all. That's not true. Uh, oh my God. That's not, no, no, I mean, I don't know. Mushroom, yeah, mushroom. You know what they are? They're they're, they're they, you know aromantic and whatever. I don't. I'm not. I'm not doing this allegory. But uh, the, I have seen setups where people get like logs that they inoculate with spores, and then oh. like if they have like you know, a backyard or something like that. They just, you know, they'll have like, you know, maybe a hundred square feet, 200 square feet of like mushroom wood. And really? then, yeah. And then they'll just like go out and like grab the mushrooms when they want them. Um, you know, we, we got a Christmas gift from one of my aunts, like a mushroom growing kit. That's um, it was great. Yeah. We had trumpet mushrooms growing in our kitchen and like, you know, we basically, we made a bunch of, we fried them up and, you know, it tastes like fried chicken. Yeah. Um, the, it's some risotto. Downside, yeah, exactly. Get some, uh, you know, get some nice like mm, vitamin D in your bloodstream. Um, I would do it outside uh, <laughs> if, if I were to do it again. I mean, just because oh, like, it's you know, it, it's not that it's musty. It's you got to mist it. And like, you know, mm. we, we basically ended the experiment when we accidentally sprayed our like household vinegar cleaner on the mushrooms and they didn't like, you know, I mean, so yeah, it's like, that's not good. Don't eat. Yeah, those. yeah. It's not like a chill, like, you know, oh, we'll just put a pothos like right here in this, you know, the a mushroom is a, a big operation. But if you have if you have the space, um, you know, listener, uh, check out the inoculated mushrooms. I think I think you'll uh, I think hmm. you'll find some some interesting shit there. That wasn't um, even our garden tip. No, no. I think Which they have some inoculated. Next. I think they have inoculated mulch, too. Um, now, um, I bought mulch on the weekend. Mm, that's the good shit right there. Mm-hmm. I yeah, was at, the, I, so we're going into garden tip. What kind of garden tips you got? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I was re-listening to one of the garden tips so that I make sure I don't repeat my garden tips. Oh, that's yeah. One of yeah, the yeah, things yeah. I do for the listeners. Uh, <laughs> because sometimes I'm like, did I already do that garden tip? And I heard us, our sound effect for garden tip was garden tip. <laughs> like it was the... What is it? The monster truck. Uh, yeah, 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 anyway. yeah. Oh man, we got to get a monster truck guy. We got to get more voice actors in on this bitch. But yeah, like, what, what? You know, give me the goods. Okay, I got it. Here, I got it because the I want to tell people about drought resistance plants. Yeah, <gasps> because my wife and I, we were at the Homa Depot, um, 
aka Home Depot on the weekend, and we always gravitate towards the drought resistant plants because we live in California. Mm-hmm. And first of all, our soil is a horrific combination of clay and cement. And uh, our rain is irregular and light. So we get like less than 10 inches a year some years. So it's really important to have trees that can survive in crappy soil mm. or bushes that can survive in crappy soil and very little uh, water. And so I wanna put out the free money endorsement on tea trees, mm. tea trees that go by the Latin name of leptospermum. And that's not why I selected it, but yeah, yeah, I know yeah. it. <laughs> Effie's like walking through the nursery, like, all right, which one of these is like the closest to dicks? <laughs> I just noted it in case you needed to find it. Uh, it is the craziest name I've heard in a while. But anywho, um, the tea tree, it's got lovely pink little flowers. It is pest free, doubt resistant. It grows in poor soil. It's still, I'm still talking disease free. It attracts butterflies. It's still going. Deer resistant is one of the things. I think you meant to say drought resistant, but I I prefer to believe that it's doubt resistant. It Uh, is. You can't. It's no. I (laughs) doubt. You just have to believe in this truth. You cannot doubt it. (laughs) Yeah. There's no. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Lovely little pig flowers too, which you don't doubt. Don't doubt it. So, it. it sounds delightful. I mean, like I, that, I mean, what a beautiful little. Yeah. What a beautiful and so right baby. now, if you Google it, you will see these gorgeous little pink flowers and it covers the entire bush. And these bushes grow like 10 feet tall. Wow. And so we're just thrilled. We bought, we had two in the, no, actually we have four in the yard right now. They're all gorgeous and blooming. So we went and bought two more. Um, mm. And it's called tea tree because the Australians and New Zealanders used to soak the leaves in boiling water to make herbal tea. Apparently it's pretty huh. good. I haven't tried it yet, but hmm. you know. Well, I mean, yeah, you get if you know when the world really ends, you can make your own tea tree shampoo and like uh, all sorts of other good stuff. Yes. I mean, th- plus, I mean, like I think there are a lot of of uh, trees that you know we have like these common you know medicinal uses for like witch hazel that are actually just super beautiful and drought resistant. Um, like hell, freaking yeah, I love a good tea tree. Um, oh, you were familiar. Already, I I mean like I I I actually I learned about the tea tree in high school when like somebody got these really good tea tree um, dipped like uh, what's it called um, toothpicks that oh, we're all obsessed right. with yeah yeah it was like they're they was, like really good um, so yeah I, it's been a little bit of a thing but my tip for those this, of you, you with know, cowboy hats and boots yeah, that need yeah a good exactly toothpick. if you're, <laughs> if you're really trying to like rough it you know put out a vibe. Um, that, so I, you know, it may be too late where you are various listeners in the, in the country, but I would say one of the most important things that I do as a gardener is keep track of what's going on at like my local botanical gardens mm. and like, you know, kind of in, in New York city, we're very fortunate that we have snug Harbor, which is run by the Smithsonian in Staten Island. Wow. That's like a really, really nice conservatory. And then we also have the Queens farm in Queens, which has been continuously farmed for like three or 400 years. Both of those places do plant sales every uh, spring and fall. So like in the spring, you know, you can go and get a whole bunch of really cool plants, usually picked by somebody who's got like just a dorky interest in cool plants. And so like, if you are fortunate enough to have the inn, um, you can get yourself like a pretty reliable source of like hard to find 
you know, not that typical well-grown, organically grown stuff. Um, yeah. So, you know, like, and that's like my gardening has been really, really elevated by access to those folks, especially around stuff like compost, you know, like, cause you know, there is, there is a degree to which like, you know, not to like burden the metaphor about, you know, gardening is just like investing too much, but like you do need a community of other practitioners yeah. to learn from. And, you know, like if you have people in your local environment that are dealing with the same soil conditions, you know, that are like, you know, and sitting like they, you, I guarantee you within a hundred miles of almost everybody, there's somebody who's sitting there hard thinking about how do we bring native, you know, comfortable wildlife back into this area, totally. you know, and, and maybe even organizing semi-annual plant sales about it. So don't sleep on that. Is my I'm going to call it. That's the tip of the day. You nailed it. Tip because, of the day. Because I find now that I go to the garden store so much, they're mm. they are very seasonal relevant. Like they yeah. know what needs to be going in the ground. Those plants are out. And so you're walking through and it's like all curated. It's not like this is what it looks like all the time. Like every two weeks they're changing what's going on. And the people you're talking to usually are like pretty avid and know what they're doing. So the garden store is, is usually a fabulous reference point for, first of all, like what is local and what you should yeah. be putting in the ground. Yeah. And second of all, like what is timely? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because like, I mean, you got to get your strawberries in. It's it, like there's a whole, there's a there's an ancient rhythm to this. Yeah, that one only learns through repetition. And you know, like I, I was, I, I had no grounding in this when I started. No, so. me neither. No. Yeah, no, I mean, no. you know, I mean, but the garden center always a source of good vibes. Um, you know, For and sure. local compost interest groups. You know. <laughs> You might you might find some dirty smelling people, but I'm sure they'll all be very nice. You might find uh, some posters with an occasional misspelling around. Oh yeah, yeah exactly. You might not, you <laughs> you might see a yeah. misspelled poster to invest with vegans. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know you know the thing that that, that really sucks is I, uh, I I made it um, complimentary, like I spelled it wrong. You know, so I really look like an idiot because it's just a it's a it's a very noticeable typographical error. I find anyway. Yeah. Um, I, I will hang my head in shame until the Don't. end of time. Yeah, no, I, yes. Yeah, no, I will. No, it's, it's because I'm bad, Ashby. <laughs> it's, it's because, it's because God hates fags. Really. Oh! <laughs> no. On that no. note. Yeah, on that note, God loves the fags and I love all of you. Uh, Bye. We love you guys. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Oh, yeah. Rain on them.